Friends, we are early in these studies in the Old Testament book of Jonah. We come tonight to just our third study in Jonah. And tonight we're considering together something of what I call Jonah's folly. Jonah's folly. So let's just read the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amitar. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. Well, he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is God's word. May God have a blessing to his word tonight. And amen to that. In our last study a fortnight ago, now we reflected upon the faithfulness of God. And how that faithfulness is expressed in His divine call upon our lives. A call unto salvation. Hallelujah! By God's grace through faith in Jesus' Son. And a call unto service. What a privilege. A call of God. In verse 1 we are told that God in his faithfulness, came to Jonah. It says the the word of the Lord. Notice Lord, capital L, uppercase O-R-D. The word in the Hebrew there is Yahweh. The word of Yahweh, often used for the covenant name of God. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Our God is a God who keeps his promise throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia. Our God is a God of His Word. This same God, who is true to His Word, came to Jonah with a word in season. Now, friends, you would think, would you not, that Jonah would have been thankful to receive such a word. You would think, would you not, that Jonah would have been overjoyed To receive a word from Yahweh, the God of his fathers. But no. (laughs) In verse 3, we read arguably two of the saddest words in this whole book. But Jonah, the word of Yahweh had come to him. But Jonah, he really ought to have been thankful. But we read, Jonah ran away from the Lord. I'm reminded of the occasion when God's people Israel would regularly hear the word of Yahweh the God, would they not, through the prophets. 
But God's people Israel were not content with the receipt of such a word through the prophets, for they wanted a king. You see, they wanted to be like the other nations around them. Nations, pagan nations, who had earthly monarchs, earthly kings. They wanted to be like the other peoples. And so God's people Israel, though they regularly heard the word of Yahweh the God through the prophets, they wanted a king. They came to Samuel 1, Samuel 8, 8, 19 through 22, crying, we want a king over us. And God said, okay, if you want a king, have it your way. <laughs> and God gave them a king, did he not? Israel got their way. Brethren, be careful what you ask for. Sometimes God in His sovereign grace gives you what you ask for even though He knows it is not right for you. Even though He knows it is not best. But God gave Israel the request for a king. But we read in Psalm 106 verse 15 that leanness entered their souls. I want to explore the nature of Jonah's folly, that by the grace of God, we might avoid the same mistakes when the word of the Lord comes to us. And firstly, I want you to know, Jonah's folly was in his unbelief. Jonah's folly was in his unbelief. Jonah's doubt I believe, brethren, should be understood as the key to this whole dilemma. Friends, be warned, please. Doubt, unbelief, these are forever at the root of sin. This is why Jesus, referring to the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8 through 9, said, When He, the Holy Spirit, comes... He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. Why? Because men do not believe. Men do not believe in me, says Jesus. This takes us back to Genesis. God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of a particular tree, remember. Then came the serpent, who at the very beginning laid the groundwork by implanting doubt into Eve's mind. How did he do that? Well, we read in Genesis 3 verse 1, 1b, he says, Did God really say? So subtle, wasn't he? Did God Really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Cunningly, Satan implied doubt in the mind of Eve. Brethren, Satan still operates this way. He did with our Lord, of course, in the gar when he was tempted in the wilderness, remember. 
On that occasion, Satan sought to cast doubt into the mind of even the the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in, in Matthew 4 verse 3, If you are the Son of God. Now, of course, he, he was, he is the Son of God. But Satan, in his cleverness, endeavored to cast doubt in the mind of even the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Implying, of course, that he might not be the Son of God. So the first thing Satan does is to get us to doubt God's Word. And this, I believe, is at the root of the problem of the modern church. The modern church is in retreat because it has doubted the Word of God. And so it was, Jonah doubted this, that this really was God saying to him, go to Nineveh. And therefore Jonah went in the opposite direction. The root of Jonah's problem, the root of our problem, my friends, is unbelief in the, in, in the Word of God. You say to me, Pastor, conjecture, conjecture. How do you know that Jonah doubted the Word of God? Well, we know that jo- Jonah doubted God's Word for had he been fully persuaded, he would have obeyed. He was a Hebrew. He was conversant with Yahweh, the God of his fathers. And if we understand the word of God, this call upon his life did not come in isolation. It came to one who understood something of God's voice. But he doubted on this occasion. Because had he been fully persuaded, he would have obeyed. I'm convinced. Full persuasion always results in obedience. That is why, brethren, it is so very important to see that repentance cannot be real until there is full persuasion first. There are many who who appear, in very commas, to repent of their sin. But later the fruits, or the lack of, deny the reality of their repentance. Because they were not fully persuaded. Assurance must come before repentance. Assurance of what is right. Assurance of what is true. Where do we get this assurance from? Arguably the greatest contribution of John Calvin to the 16th century Protestant Reformation was not his Geneva, though arguably that was an amazing place to be at the time. No, I believe the greatest contribution of John Calvin to the 16th century Reformation was his theology on the Holy Spirit. For he said, it is by the interred witness of the Spirit that we are persuaded God's Word is true. My friends, I can utter word after word, sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph, sermon after sermon from this pulpit, and it make not one iota of difference in your life. You will not be fully persuaded by Doug Atherton. Never. 
but you will be fully persuaded. If God by His Holy Spirit came and took this inspired word and applied it to your heart, that's why preachers like me are wasting our time. Except God by His Holy Spirit comes and takes this precious word and speaks into our hearts. And brethren, when the Holy Spirit does that, we are fully persuaded. I hear people say these days, I will believe the Bible, but only if you can prove that it is true externally. If you can provide empirical evidence based on predetermined criteria. I hear others say, I believe, I will believe the Bible when the archaeologists verify the Bible. These people, friends, endeavor to ascertain the truth of God's word by using a kind of radical criticism. Form criticism, as is uh, to give it proper academic name. As it happens, however, I do not believe, regardless of how much form criticism these people are presented, regardless of what kind of empirical evidence or otherwise these people are given, archaeological evidence or otherwise these people are presented, I do not believe that they will be fully persuaded. Because this, friends, is not an academic exercise. If you're here for academia's sake this evening, well, go home. Put the television on and watch something academically stimulating. But if you're here to hear the Word of God, <laughs> then God delights to take His Word and apply it to our hearts. How? By, as Calvin puts it, the interned witness of the Holy Spirit. And we are thus fully persuaded God's Word is True. Jonah doubted. Because if he had been fully persuaded, he would have obeyed. It seems to me that the church today is waiting in the halls, so to speak, to see what science is going to say before we make an opinion. Before we even move forward as a church. The church, my friends, no longer influences the world the way it did. It's the reverse now. The world is influencing the church. Because science says such and such today to the church, it seems to me that the church is simply capitulating. Oh, we say, oh, science says this. Science says that. And science, therefore, must be right because it's science. So let's tweak our biblical truth so that it fits in to scientific theory. God forgive me for even saying it, but it's happening. Let's tweak our biblical truth so that it fits into scientific theory. Notice the language, the scientific theory. Sadly, it's presented to our children these days as fact. It's not. Don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing science for bashing's sake. I think science has a contribution to make. 
In fact, the more I understand about science, and it's very little, the more I think science is proving the reality of God's word. The truth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But my friends, we as a Christian church don't need to apologize for what we believe in the word of God. We as a Christian church don't need to find ourselves on the retreat simply because science says something. Simply because some acclaimed academic in in Oxbridge College somewhere says something. Not at all. But we find ourselves on the retreat almost, almost apologizing. The church has allowed the world to convince her that she can no longer believe in the miracles of Scripture. Friends, this is not right. The church has allowed the world to convince her that she can no longer believe the historic faith as we once held on to it. Brethren, this is not right. The world, of course, seeks to categorize much of our Scripture as myth. (gasps) I ask you, when I was studying theology at, uh, at university level, undergraduate level, I, I almost failed my Old Testament module. Scraped through by the skid of my teeth. Because I just refused to accept what the tutor was telling me. As week after week after week, lecture after lecture after lecture, <laughs> she was telling me it was myth. First, 11, 12, 13 chapters of Genesis. Oh, she says, that's myth. And that's how she went on. And, and, I, and in all of my essays, of course, I countered her hypotheses. And she almost failed me. I don't care. But that's the world we live in. And that's even within the theological college. Not scientific study. Theology. We don't need to apologize. The scripture teaches in a miraculous God because our God is miraculous. He can be no other because He is infinite. (laughs) And whenever an infinite God interjects into a finite world, what happens? What miracles happen? Don't they? Oh, hang on a minute. Let's just check what the scientists say before we actually uh, subscribe to that hypothesis. No, friends. No, friends. We don't need to apologize. But I believe the church is on the back foot here in the free west. Because we're apologizing. We are allowing the world to dictate to us as to what the Holy Scriptures say. And that is not right. Friends, it is not the call of the church to wait around for science. It's not the call of the church to wait around for the archaeologists to verify Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit that gives the persuasion. And may God hasten the hour, I pray, when that persuasion sweeps across the church in such a way that His church will once again take the Word of God and consider it and teach it to be infallible. Rather than cower back and think, oh, hang on a minute. We can't hold on to that anymore. It's unpopular. It's unpolitical. Rubbish. Jonah. Jonah's folly was in his unbelief. I believe it was his unbelief because he was not fully persuaded. If he had been, he would have obeyed. 
Secondly, Jonah's folly was in his over-familiarity with holy things. Jonah once experienced God using him. I believe that. Jonah knew what it was to be used of the Lord. He had seen God work. And we have every reason to believe that Jonah was well acquainted with God's word and God's ways. But over-familiarity. Brethren, it can happen to the most mature Christian. Over-familiarity with holy things. Ah, you say, that's not me, I'm fine. Great. If that's the case. But often we come to church and we go from church and we've received nothing. Now, we can blame other people for that, and that's fine. It might be the preacher's fault. It might be the worship leader's fault. It might be any other, or any manner of combinations. But just perhaps sometimes we come and we're not. It's all over-familiar to us. We're not coming with a, a sense of expectation. It's all a little over-familiar. And maybe our... Maybe we're just a, bit, a little bit too well-educated in the Word, too well-educated in our theology. I think that the worst thing that can sometimes happen to a person, to a Christian, is to discover the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to discover it and to understand it, but sometimes understanding the doctrine of the sovereignty of God can cause someone, sometimes, to lose their zeal. Sometimes I wonder it's, whether it's a good thing, whether people really fully understand uh, the wonderful doctrine of justification by faith. The wonderful doctrine of, of Christian liberty. Because sometimes when they fully understand it, then it takes, they, they start to take God too lightly. And they start to take God's word concerning a holy life in this world too lightly. It's good to understand these things. It's good to have a theology. It's good to, to dock the theological I and cross the theological T, brethren. But be careful of over-familiarity with holy things. I suspect Jonah had a bit of this in him. There's no sense here, initially at least, of Jonah being afraid, is there? That comes a little later, I believe. But initially at least... You don't, you don't read of, of Jonah in awe of this word, do you? That puzzles me. He knew the truth. I believe he did. And whilst he wouldn't have known the verse, for it hadn't been penned yet, he knew that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. He knew that, and understanding that, he kind of nonchalantly decided to please himself. And it's okay, it's okay, it's okay me pleasing myself, because all things will work okay. God will sort it all out for me in the end. He'll, he'll, he'll figure it out in spite of me. And Christians can, can be like this sometimes. We can quote Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And quoting it, we can say with the very next breath, well, I know that God will work out everything in the end, and therefore, perhaps it's fine for me to, to please myself in the immediate term. God's going to work it all out for me. Friends, this is a very, very dangerous position to take. Yes, God is sovereign. 
Yes, God will have his way in the end. But by pleasing ourselves, by sowing to the flesh, we live in disobedience to the Holy Spirit. And friends, there are always consequences to disobedience, to sin. God cleanses us of all sin if we confess. Hallelujah. But oftentimes, consequences remain. We can't suffer loss. Jesus said that we must be like little children. I quite like that dynamic. Matthew 18, verse 3. Be like little children. Perhaps accept things in a very simplistic kind of manner. And if God says something, I accept it because God has said it. God honors those, I believe, who in true childlike simplicity embrace His Word. The word that is brought to us by the interred Holy Spirit. Be careful of over-familiarity. You find yourself in that place, sitting here, it's all over-familiar. My friends, cry out to God for a fresh experience. You come around the table of communion every, well, twice, twice a month here. If, if you sat there and it's all over familiar, then cry out to God for a fresh experience. If you come around the Scriptures, it's, it's all much of a muchness. We've been here before. Can't expect anything particularly great from tonight's service. Brethren, if that's in your heart, then cry out to God for a fresh experience. My understanding is He longs to give you a fresh experience. And you need to encounter Him afresh. Yes, you might well have been blessed last week. And that was good for last week. But it is not good for this. A fresh encounter. Jonah was over familiar. And thirdly, Jonah's folly, I argue, was in his ingratitude. We've reflected already, haven't we? Jonah really ought to have been thankful that God had given him the commandment to go to Nineveh. He should have been thankful that God was calling him into active service, so to speak. He should have been thankful that God had seen the sins of Nineveh and had a heart for that 120,000 people and wanted to warn them. Of their wickedness. He wanted to draw them to himself. You would think that, that Jonah, the man of God, would be thankful. But he wasn't. His folly was in his ingratitude. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor? How do you know he was ungrateful? Well, brethren, we show our gratitude by the way we live. We show our gratitude by our obedience to Him. Now we gather for corporate worship once, twice, three times a week perhaps and we sing our, our, our songs of praise and worship. It's very beautiful. But in the final analysis I suggest to you they mean little or nothing except that your gratitude is lived out in the way that you live. A life transformed. A life in obedience to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't come to me and say, Pastor, I'm so grateful what God has done. 
on a Sunday, and then for the other six days of the week, completely ignore what God is speaking to you about in and through His Word. You are not grateful. Because your gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ is not expressed so much in word or in song or in prayer. It is expressed in a life that's changed. It's expressed in a heart that wants to serve. It's expressed in a spiritual disposition that wants to be in obedience to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jonah was ungrateful. Because he chose ever so easily to go the other way. You might consider this to be mere conjecture. And this is my conclusion. You might consider this to be mere preacher's license. But it seems to me that Jonah felt confirmation in his disobedience. Why do I suggest that? Well, because in my limited experience, this is often the case. I've come across many Christians who feel confirmation in their disobedience. Scholars call this the providence of sin. (laughs) I use the term godly, but I use it in a way that I hope, I pray, will arrest your attention. Notice here, Jonah determined to go to Tarshish. It was, of course, against the will and the purpose of Yahweh, his God. But he determined to go to Tarshish. And en route, lo and behold, we read that he found a ship going to Tarshish. Oh, that's providential, he must have thought. That's providential. Who would have, who would, who would have thought it? I came to this port, and what do you know? There's a ship going to Tarshish. Confirmation. No. Not at all. But that's, I believe, what he felt. Confirmation. He no doubt convinced himself that he was right. It is like Eve in the garden. After she succumbed to the doubt, did God really say? Did he really say? After she succumbed to the doubt, she looked at the fruit, didn't she? She saw the fruit and saw that it was good to eat. I suspect that by the time Eve partook the fruit and was enjoying its taste, its succulence, I'm, I'm convinced that she was convinced that she was doing the right thing. Oh, it must be right. It tastes so good. No, Eve, it's not right. But she justified it. And so Jonah now making a 180 degree turn from God's commandment, going in the other direction, he found a ship. And perhaps it gave him comfort. You see, friends, when you are living in disobedience to God's commandments, it is very easy to find many providences, as it were, to confirm you in that disobedience. 
I've talked to businessmen who said, Oh, pastor, I must be doing something right. Look how God has blessed my business. And I say, yes, that's nice. But doesn't God bless the businesses of atheists also, it seems? You see, my friends, sin can be very providential. The way of disobedience has the uncanny knack of finding confirmations. And the problem with the modern church is that she finds confirmations for the things that she wants to believe and convinces herself in her folly. I wonder how many of us are in rebellion to God's will because we have come across what we discern to be certain confirmations. Oh, oh, but this happened, Pastor. This happened to me, Lord. Okay, that's nice. But is it the will of God? I'm convinced. Certainly by the end of chapter 3, Jonah was convinced. (laughs) Jonah felt confirmation in his disobedience. He just happened to find a ship. But he was in disobedience, friends. These are sad words, aren't they? But Jonah ran away from the Lord. But I close very briefly with happy words. Because at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 4, I have to thank God for these words, Then the Lord. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Then the Lord. We've just read, but Jonah. Now we read, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. How kind Jehovah God is to Jonah. Even in his disobedience, he sought him. Even in his disobedience, he wooed him back to himself. Isn't that amazing? If it were me, if I were, if I were Jonah's boss, I would have said, well, blow you, Jonah. Blow you, son. Off you go. You live your life of disobedience. See if I care. But not God, hallelujah. Not God, hallelujah. And isn't that wonderful for you and I? For who of us here this evening have not found ourselves where Jonah found himself? Be honest. Who of us here this evening have not found ourselves under the word of God, under conviction of sin, understanding something of his call, but we have decided to do as Jonah did. Maybe we've discerned confirmations. To prove, to to prove us in our disobedience. But we've gone 180 degrees. We've turned away from God. How wonderful our God is. It says here, the Lord, then the Lord. Hallelujah. God stays with us, friends. Even though we turn our back on Him. Our God is a long-suffering God. He's been long-suffering with me down the years. I don't understand it. I would have given up on me a long, long, long time ago. But God has never, never given up on me. 
I've found myself faltering and failing. I've turned my back upon the divine will of God, the word of God, as it comes by the Holy Spirit. But God is, is so long-suffering. And he's pursued me to the point where he gets me by the scruff of the neck and says, My son, pull yourself together, lad. Now, I've never been thrown into a, into a sea like Jonah had yet. But metaphorically, perhaps I have known my own turbulent spiritual seas. And metaphorically, I have been swallowed by my own great fish. That great fish was sent by God to woo me back to obedience. To woo me back to Himself. How great is our God. Oh, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Even as I say his name, it's almost as though I'm echoing my own. Atherton, Atherton, Atherton. Oh, my disbelief. How oft has my disbelief caused me to, to falter and fail? Oh, Atherton, my over-familiarity. Oh, I've been here before. I know the word. I've got my theology sorted. How often has that over-familiarity caused me to doubt him? To turn from him. Oh, Atherton, how often is my ingratitude? Oh, I sing the songs, but are they genuine expressions of my heart? Atherton comes, the Lord comes to Atherton and says, I'll, I'll swallow you over my big fish. That's painful. Feels a little uncertain. Feels a little unsure. Can't imagine what Jonah was feeling. But my friends, that fish was the grace of a loving Heavenly Father who would not let him go, faltering and failing in his own disobedience, but wanted to woo him back. That's my God. That's my Father in Heaven. He's never given up on me yet. Hallelujah. My prayer is that I will take these lessons, the lessons of Jonah's folly, apply them to my life, that I might, that I might not go the way of Jonah next time I hear the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Ah, it's a challenging word. It searches our hearts. It exposes us in so many ways. Perhaps we're finding ourselves a little uncomfortable, a little shifty on the seat, maybe sweating hands, palms of our hands, maybe uncertain, unsure. Your Holy Spirit comes, says it as it is. Take the word, Lord, that we might be fully persuaded <laughs> and move in a life of obedience to that word for your kingdom's sake. Amen.